I think that the lessons of childhood follow us through the rest of our lives. I, I know that's true for me. And today on A Jolt of Joy, I'll be sharing with you one of my precious childhood memories. It's about me and my dad, and he was really a general of the faith, and I got to be his little girl. I'm Bible teacher and author Carol McLeod, and you're listening to A Jolt of Joy on the Charisma Podcast Network. Our current series is titled Vibrant, and we're learning how to live a joyful life here on earth in spite of all the pain and disappointment and struggles we might go through. The only way to do that is to align your life with the power and the strength that's in the eternal Word of God. You know, my dad was a farmer at heart, and his favorite hours of every day were spent in the one-acre plot of land that was located behind our home. I was a daddy's girl from the day I was born, and whenever he was out digging in the dirt, so was I. When he was weeding and whistling, me too. I was his partner. And when it came time to harvest the annual abundance, I loved the evenings of canning and freezing in our pink and green 1960s kitchen. My dad taught me lessons, oh, too numerous to count, during our days of watering and pruning and planting and weeding. But the one that has had the most enduring impact on me has nurtured the fruit of my life in a deep and magnificent way. My dad and I were out in the family garden early one Saturday morning, and my sister and I we had fought the night before and things had escalated out of control. I was probably 10 years old and she was 12 or 13. Uh, both of us had said things that were cruel and uncalled for. And my dad valued peace in our home. He guarded our home ferociously because he wanted his home to be a place of peace. And so as my sister and I were arguing we not only attacked one another with our verbal outrage, but we also hurt our daddy deeply. Um, we wounded him and all that he stood for. So we're out in the garden and dad and I were just days away from the beginning of our annual harvest. And so we were surveying the fields, the crops, the abundance that we had spent nearly four months taking care of. And we came upon a section in our garden that our neighbor's dog had claimed for his very own. This dog, a mutt really, had plopped himself down on a piece of ground that was ours. It was in our garden. We had planted it. We had weeded it. We had prepared it. And this mutt, this mongrel, had expressed his bodily functions all over this tiny little piece and then he would lie there in the afternoon sun day after day after day. So this spot of the garden was absolutely ruined. Nothing would grow there except weeds. Right next to this spot of mutilation was the most vibrant part, the most fruitful portions of our entire garden. And it rained just the amount of right of rain. We'd had just enough days of sunshine. We'd fertilized it. We'd weeded it. It was glorious. Trust me, it was glorious. My dad squatted down in the early morning sunshine between those two little pieces of land, and he pointed to the dead section of our garden. And he said to me, Carol, why is this section of the garden 
dead and brown and weedy and nothing substantive is growing here. Well, I replied in my best 10-year-old voice, it's because that neighbor's dog, that horrible dog from next door, did his business all over our garden. And my dad said, that's right, honey. Now let's take a look at the section of our garden and tell me why this section is so beautiful. Well, I knew the answer to that as well. I said, I think it's because we treated it right. We watered it and weeded it and fertilized it. And so it grew. My dad took my hands in his hands and he said, Carol, life is like that. If you treat something unkindly, it's going to die. But if you treat it with love and care, it will flourish and be more vibrant than you could ever imagine. You know, I was only a decade old when I learned that lesson, but I understood what my precious father was trying to teach me. I threw my arms around his neck. I was always a highly dramatic child. I threw my arms around his neck and sobbed, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I'll never do that again. I'll never treat someone like that again. Please forgive me. Well, forgiveness was quickly given. And since that morning, I've carried the word flourish in the treasure house of my heart. Because my dad told me that if you treat something with care and attention and love, it is sure to flourish. Let me read to you from Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He'll grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, he will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. My friend, God made you to flourish, not to die on the vine of life, not for you to be trampled by outside variants. God didn't create you to be all shriveled up and brown with anger and discouragement and worry. Oh no, God doesn't want you to live a brittle life where the littlest breeze could blow you off the vine that gives you sustenance, that gives you food and purpose. God's will for your life is to flourish and to be vibrant in every season of life, in every area of life. And you know what? That includes your emotions. That's right. God has a plan for your emotions and he wants your emotions to flourish. Years ago, I read a beautiful definition of this word flourish. This is what it means to receive life from outside yourself, creating vitality within yourself and producing blessing beyond yourself. That's so good. Let me read it to you one more time. Flourish, to receive life from outside yourself, creating vitality within yourself and producing blessing beyond yourself. You are created to flourish, to receive life from God the Father, from Jesus the Son, and from the power of the Holy Spirit. You are created to grow because you're receiving life from God. You were created to flourish, to allow the fruits of the Spirit to make you into someone better than yourself, to create in you uh, a personhood, a being 
that you could never be without the help of the Holy Spirit. God created you to live a life that blesses others that you would never be able to do on your own without the help of the Holy Spirit. Flourishing means becoming the person that God thought of the day that he thought of you. You know, when God first thought of you, he thought of a person who would be deeply committed to loving his or her family, even when they were at their absolute worst. When God first thought of you, he thought of a person who would invest their lives in eternal pursuits and not in temporary pleasures. When God first thought of you, he saw a seasoned, wise person who was more committed to prayer than he or she was to worry. When God first thought of you, he thought of a person, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who would wring the joy out of an ordinary day. Now, as you allow God to help you flourish, you will change, but you will still be you. God will not discard your raw material. You'll still be you, but you will be God's masterpiece of you. Let me tell you what I mean. Before Paul met Jesus, he was a brilliant, passionate zealot who persecuted Christians. After Paul met Jesus, he was a brilliant, passionate zealot who sacrificed himself for the cause of Jesus Christ. Before Peter met the Holy Spirit, he was impetuous, talkative, and competitive. After Peter received the Holy Spirit, he was bold, which is a much holier version of impetuous, and he used his way with words to preach mighty sermons. Peter channeled his competitive nature into winning souls rather than into winning arguments. Okay, I told you a story about my dad today. Now let me tell you a story about my mom. My mom inherited, and I use the term loosely, an old beat-up dresser that came from my father's parents' farm. Um, It had been in their chicken shed for decades and had gathered dust and chicken doo-doo and feathers. And when my mom and dad got married, they were as poor as church mice, but they were deeply in love. My paternal grandmother painted the dresser an ugly shade of olive green and then gave it to them. It was in our upstairs hallway for all of my childhood. We used it for dress-up clothes and tinker toys, for crayons and markers and construction paper. And when I went to college, my mom took this dresser to a man in the next town over by the name of Mr. C. Freeney. He in his retirement years, was refinishing furniture. And so she thought, it's time for me to get rid of the ugly green paint and to have this dresser refinished. She wanted its natural wood back. She she wanted to know what it looked like when it had been creative. Well, the very next day, Mr. Cianfrini called my mom and said, come and get it. And my mom said, what? Are you done with it already? That, that can't be. This was going to be quite the job for you. And Mr. Cianfrini, we called him Mr. C, said, I looked it up. This was a dresser that was made during the Revolutionary War in the days of George Washington. He said it's worth tens of thousands of dollars, and I'm not going to touch it. Well, my mom insisted that he was the only one she would allow to touch it. 
And it took him months. Um, she would stop and look at this dresser from time to time. But gently, oh so gently, Mr. C was removing the grime, the paint, and the stain. He was buffing it and oiling it and varnishing it and restoring it. My friend, you are that dresser. You were made to be valued and cared for. But life has placed doo-doo and chicken feathers and dust all over you. And then if that wasn't enough, someone, some self-help guru has painted you an ugly shade of olive green. And God wants to remove all that. Mr. C, Jesus Christ, wants to remove all of that and restore you to your natural beauty because you're priceless. You're valuable. In closing today, let's look at one portion in scripture concerning what I like to call an emotional victory in the life of one of our heroes of the faith, David. You know, we all have emotional defeats in life, um, times when we didn't respond well emotionally. And we also have emotional victories in life when even though our circumstances were painful and tough, we responded in a godly and appropriate manner. Well, what happened to David for him to experience an emotional victory? David experienced the worst pain imaginable. His little boy died. He died. I can't imagine that pain. David's emotions were so deep and so raw that even eating was torturous. I've talked to parents before who've had a child precede them to heaven, and they've told me that holding a normal conversation is like running the gauntlet, that looking ahead is devastating. You have no future. If there are worse things in life than losing a child, I don't know what they are. Um, and David was facing this emotional event, this devastating emotional event, one that would define him for the rest of his earthly days. You know, the bigger the emotional event is that we face in life, the greater defining power it holds for us. For David, his emotional event was a child that died too early. Um, and the child died actually because of David's sin. If anyone deserved to do some self-loathing at this point, it was David. If anyone deserved to beat himself up to an emotional pulp, it was David. If anyone deserved to crawl into the black hole of depression and never come out again, it was David. But my friend, now lean in and listen to this. What you deserve to do emotionally and what you should do emotionally are two different roads entirely. What you deserve to do and what you should do are two different roads entirely. Let's see what David did. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. So we're going to break this verse, 2 Samuel 12, 20, into all the steps that David took after this devastating emotional event. And from the things that David did, from the choices that David made, we're going to learn how to make these same choices as well. These six actions 
will heal you and restore you. So first of all, um, this verse says that David arose from the ground. So symbolically, this means that he got out of the dirt, out of the pain of his circumstances. Um, one translation says that he established himself away from the dirt of the ground. So David established himself away from the horror of this moment and actually moved forward. My friend, no matter what trauma you've experienced in life, you must move ahead. The enemy's plan is for devastating events to put your life on pause, to cripple you from moving ahead. The Holy Spirit's plan is that painful events will prepare you for service in the kingdom of God. Excruciating events can actually propel you into your destiny. Okay, the second thing that David did was that he washed himself. He got rid of the dirt, the pain, and the disappointment. So you can get up out of the ground. You can establish yourself away from the pain, but there still might be some residue on your body, a reminder of the pain, the tragedy, or the trauma. You might need counseling. Go for it. You might need to confess something. Do it. You might need somebody else to pray for you. Ask for it. Do whatever it takes to rid yourself of the residue of this excruciating moment in your life. The third thing that David did was that he anointed himself. Now, anointing yourself in the Old Testament always happened after the washing, after the bathing. And anointing symbolized preparing yourself for service, um, forgiving, for ministering to others, for leading others. Um, but anointing, preparing oneself for service, always meant a giving of oneself to others. So after dealing with the most traumatic pain known to mankind, David anointed himself. He prepared himself for service in the kingdom of God and to give to others. You know, most of us would rather curl up in the fetal position and never talk again than begin to serve others again. But let me remind you, what you feel like doing and what you should do are two different things all together. Don't waste your pain, but use it as a springboard for serving others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 are among my favorite verses in scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted by God. That's the game plan. The fourth thing that David did was he changed his clothes. You know what I think he did? I think he put on the garment of praise. Let me read to you what Isaiah 61 verse 3 says about this glorious garment of praise. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You know, so many of us never change our clothes after we've gone through a hard thing in life. We walk around choosing to be identified by the pain of the past, talking about it, wearing it like a medal. But oh no, 
We've got to take off the pain of the past and put on the garment of praise. We have to worship the Lord in spite of our pain. You know, worship doesn't stuff the pain. Worship deals with the pain. It gets our eyes off ourselves and onto the one who's worthy of our highest praise. The fifth thing that David did was he came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. If you long to flourish, to be a better version of you, if you long to move beyond the pain, this is what you will do. You will change clothes and you will worship. David moved past the emotional pain and right into his destiny. You know, we've been given some powerful tools to use while reaching for an abundant or a vibrant life. And worship is one of these weapons we have been given. We all have painful memories that we need to deal with. And these painful memories influence our emotional stability today. If you ignore these painful memories, as I said before, if you stuff them, you'll become an angry, resentful person. But how do we deal with the pain of the past? Well, a great counselor, deliverance, prayer, reading books, forgiving other people, confessing. But one of the most powerful cleansing agents to deal with the pain of the past is worship. Worship heals your mind and your memories. It's a glorious cleansing tool. It takes the power out of the pain. Worship does not ignore the pain of the past, but it dismantles the pain of the past. And finally, number six, the sixth thing David did after the loss of his child is he went into his own home and he ate. Well, what does this symbolize? It symbolizes the word of God. He ate the bread of life. After being traumatized, you need eternal nutrients. You need the sustenance that only the word of God can give to you. We all have events that have impacted our lives in, in a dynamic way emotionally. But let's learn from David. Get up and leave him behind. Wash yourself of the residue. Anoint yourself. Prepare yourself for service. Change your clothes. Take off the ashes of the past and then put on the garment of praise and eat, feast on the word of God. The series that we have been studying weekly for, for the last few months is titled Vibrant, and it comes from my book by the same name. You can order your copy of Vibrant from Amazon, from Christian Books, from my website, which is carolmccloudministries.com, or from Shop the Word. It's also available at Books A Million and Barnes and & Noble. I'd love to hear from you. We love to pray for the people who listen to this podcast. So feel free to email me at carol at carolmccloudministries.com. I have a whole team of prayer warriors who are just waiting to pray for you. I want to remind you today, my friend, that when you choose Jesus, you get joy because Jesus always brings with him the joy of his presence. Don't ever doubt it. I'm praying today that you will choose Jesus and that he will bring his joy into your life. I'll see you next time on A Jolt of Joy.